Fashion Questions. On each episode, we ask a different question to retail insiders about the fashion industry. This is where they share their views and insights. Brought to you by Hive. The group's fashion portfolio includes Moda at Spring and Autumn Fair, Pure London and Pure Origin. Stay tuned. Welcome to Fashion Questions. How can fashion become more inclusive? This is the question we're focusing on this new episode. McKinsey & Company, a global management consulting firm, produced a report about the state of diversity, equity and inclusion in fashion. They said that certain groups of talented individuals, in particular people of color, struggle to break into the fashion industry and those who manage to get in don't feel welcome. A substantive underrepresentation of diverse talent begins in fashion schools and internships and continues throughout all levels into the highest echelons of influence and leadership. Since this report was published in July 2021, diversity and inclusion is still an issue in the fashion industry. To talk to us about this, we have in the studio celebrity stylist Zadrian Smith, one of the founding members of the Fashion Minority Alliance and also a member of the Diversity and Inclusion Steering Committee at the British Fashion Council. That is, and I quote, activating a long-term plan to fight prejudice and discrimination and galvanize the industry into action. I'm Lina Vash, content editor at Hive. Good morning, Zadrian, and thank you so much for taking the time for being with us today at our Hive studio. Good morning, Lena. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a, a privilege to be able to have any platform to speak about these things that are really important to me, diversity and inclusion and equity. So thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I mean, it's such a big topic, isn't it? You and your business partner, Sarah Edmingston, work with the likes of Ariana DeBose and Naomi Scott. And as the business of fashion reported after this year's Met Ball, both of you are pushing fashion houses to diversify. What can you tell us about this? It's, yeah, I think it's a really big conversation. It's a conversation that I'm learning. Um, it's not going to be a quick solution. I think I am naturally an impatient person, so I, I, I like to see results quite immediately. But um, racism is uh, intrinsically built into the DNA of the fashion industry. I think that minorities were never really painted to be a part of the canvas of the fashion industry. And now that people are speaking out um, against that and really pushing for equality and justice, it's been a slow burn. It's been a very slow burn. And I think that a lot of the luxury houses at the very top that have the power to institute and to help propel this change are doing it very slowly and are doing it in a way that I've been told instructs their business. So it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one, and I think that the only way that the change will happen is that people like myself who have been blessed and fortunate enough to kind of penetrate that luxury sphere to speak out. I think, however, when you do speak out, you become the black sheep of the litter. And that's also difficult. It's quite exhausting and it's quite draining to kind of feel like every day you know that there's going to be a fire that you need to put out, you know that there's going to be a conversation that you need to have around this topic when what seems so normal and logical to you is not 
to 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 other people. I see. So yeah, it's 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 been a difficult journey and a difficult road to to leveling the playing field, but I have decided that it is a big part of my purpose. You know, I came very close to leaving the industry completely, and in in my partnership with Sarah, I have found a new purpose in the work and a new purpose in my mission that kind of exceeds past just the styling component of what we do as a, as a business. That's really wonderful. I mean, in the past, the main issue in terms of diversity and inclusion was the reduced number of black models on magazine covers and on the catwalk. But now it's much more comprehensive from black businesses to magazine editorial teams. It's important to mention here the incredible work of British Vogue editor-in-chief and European editorial director at Condé Nast, Edward Inful. He has certainly done a lot to make fashion far more inclusive. Looking back at one you first started your career, what changes can you see? I think it's so interesting that you start this off by talking about black models, because I think that calls to question this idea of the black body as a commodity, the black body being a performance tool, a performance outlet. And I actually think that that, if not done correctly, can be quite degrading and quite dehumanizing. So I think that the first portal of entry for blacks into the industry was as models, which if you speak to any of the early, you know, African models or black models who kind of were able to kind of, you know, start off, it was very difficult for them. And I think that it wasn't being done in a way that really celebrated their culture and celebrated who they were. I think it was done more so in a way, I think, don't get me wrong, there were some designers who I think really did, I think um, Monsieur Issey Laurent really did celebrate, you know, African culture and black models. And he always, the reference points were always there. But I think, you have to be quite careful, even you know, presently today, to ensure that what you by by integrating people of color into a, a magazine editorial or into a commercial campaign that you're not doing it to tick a box. And when you're doing it to tick a box, it's very clear that you're doing it to tick a box because if your company does not have that history of celebrating minorities and embracing the culture, and if you even if you look at the C-suite, if the C-suite is not celebrating, if it's not trickling down from the top, it's very easy to see that yes. through what is being put out into the public sphere. And you can see that hundred percent because the, I see some things sometimes and I'm just I'm shocked because it became fashionable. Yes. Or, you know, you could say someone, oh, this is cool, so we should let's let's use this rapper right now because there's trending on on TikTok. There's there has to be thought put into these ideas. And I think that that thought cannot come from a white woman or a white man. That thought has to come from someone who has walked in that journey or who has lived that experience yes. so that they can shed some light on what that experience should look like when conveyed to a public. And yes. that's a big part of the problem that people at the top, are not willing to relinquish their po- relinquish their power or to share their power with minorities. Did you personally experience discrimination in your career, and how did you find the courage to carry on pursuing your goals? You were mentioning earlier that it came a point where you actually questioned if you should stay in the fashion industry or just simply walk out. So, what made you stay? How did you find the strength to stay? And can you talk us a little yeah. bit about this? How did I find this? I'm still finding the strength to stay, to be honest. Oh, how do I find the strength to stay? I think you I think you find the strength to stay when you realize that what you're doing is much bigger than you. 
I think that you reach a point in your career and you reach a point in your life where you realize that I am in service to this calling. I am in service to making this change. It's 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 a big ask. And, you know, I'm quite a spiritual person and I, I pray a lot. And I, I do think that in this moment in my life, I am meant to be the person calling out these things and having these conversations and trying to push forward the agenda of making sure that we level out the playing field and we we, we encourage and make sure that in the way that for, for years and centuries the fashion industry has been very elitist, that we now try to dissolve that and, and change it so that it becomes a more liberal space. As it should, and it's, even saying it, fashion, it's, it's a trillion-dollar industry. It touches every corner, every person of the globe. Why would you not want that reflected through the work that you do? Why would you not want that reflected in the boardrooms so that it's truly inclusive? I'm still quite boggled by that. So, yes, I have. I have experienced instances where, you know, something as simple as showing up to a show and seeing my colleagues receiving the best of treatment and me arriving and not even having a seat assignment or arriving to a a dinner being hosted by a luxury brand and being told that, you know, stylists are not invited to the dinner with their clients and then arriving and realizing that every, every white stylist was invited, but I wasn't invited. It's tricky, you know. How do you deal with that? How do you exist in a space where you know that people don't really see you or value you for what you bring to the table. I say, how do you exist in a space where you're tolerated but not accepted? That's difficult. During lockdown, I watched a BOF live streaming with fashion journalist Tim Blanks interviewing Iman. She said Black people need to work twice as much to have the same level of recognition. Is this still the case? 100%. 100%. I'm from the South in America. And when I, you know, very early on, my grandmother, my mother told me, you're going to have to work 10 times harder than everyone else if you want to make make some, make some something of yourself. First to arrive and the last to leave. And there's definitely no room for mediocrity if you want to get any type of access to these spaces. Yeah, so what Iman said is 100% true. You have to be 10 times more. You know, I think things that you might see that are acceptable from your contemporaries or your colleagues. Um, It's not the same formula or recipe that would be acceptable from you. That's a shame. Yeah. Can you tell us about how you develop a look or a series of looks Mm -hmm. if for the red carpet? Do you start with a mood board or with a dress that you already saw on the catwalk? Do you make a deliberate effort to support brands and designers from diverse backgrounds, or is it all about the dress itself without any bias? That is a wonderful question. I think I am so fortunate to have cut my teeth at American Vogue and British Vogue. So I think just to be a fly on the wall and see some of the greatest editors of all time, you know, Grace Connington, Tony Goodman, uh, Joe McKenna, Lucinda Chambers, Francesca Burns, the list goes on and on, but just to watch them work. Um, and to see how they use the clothes to build a narrative was such a huge learning curve for me. Um, it's something that I definitely um, have instilled in the work that I do. So in our studio, everything starts with research. We like to contextualize everything so that we can build out a narrative that feels um, very connected to whatever product that we're working on, whether that be with a celebrity, making sure that we're honoring their authentic self, or whether that be an editorial, making sure that we're connecting with whatever the the storyline or the narrative might be in that editorial. So I think that for us, it all starts with the research. It always begins with what are we trying to say? What are we saying through this red carpet? 
what is our client trying to say and making sure that that measures up. So it really, for us, it doesn't start with the clothes. It starts with the person and it starts mm-hmm. with the story. And once we understand what that story and that narrative is, we then think about which brands speak to that story. So yes, I am always looking for brands who have been doing the work, for brands who have you know, not only been posting black squares in a, Christ, in a critical time in, in society, but not actually doing the work. I'm interested in, in working with and partnering with brands who are informed, who are aware, and who through a little bit of research and investigation, um, you can discover that they are trying to also be an ally in this effort to diversify the fashion space. Um, there's a lot of brands who are not doing that, and I choose to not work with them. And until they do so, I hold space for them to change. And I, and I and sometimes they might ask, why aren't you working with us? And I let them know. I think it's all about discourse. I think that the only way to, to, to implement change is to always be open to dialogue and, to, and be open to a discourse so that you can hear it from both sides. But after you have that discourse and that dialogue, if that change is not happening, then we cannot do business together. We cannot work together. That just doesn't sit well with me and my morals and my values. You said that celebrity styling is all about relationships. Clients tend to want the same dresses from luxury brands with a strong heritage that have the power to enhance their own status. These can be hard to secure and you may even have to compete with magazines who want to photograph them for their editorials. How do you navigate this? Do you feel diversity and inclusion is making its way to the top or is power still one-sided? I think power is definitely still very one-sided. I think it's very interesting. I said this to a journalist a couple weeks ago, you know, right in that moment, that critical moment during COVID and, you know, the BLM movement and the Stop Asian Hate movement, there was a moment where you, I think, I was like, oh, wow, is fashion going to actually change? Because <laughs> there was, you started to see, like, all these initiatives coming together, these groups forming. But now, as we return back to whatever this new normal is, everyone's going back to business as usual. And that's, that's really sad. That's just really sad. And I think the reason that everything is going back to business as usual is because there was this there was this quick hire of the diversity and inclusion officer that you saw hired at a lot of the luxury brands. If you just do a quick Google, a lot of those people are no longer at these companies. Oh, I see. So I think that a lot of it was performative. I think that a lot of people were doing it for optics. And now that we're back to the fast-paced nature of the fashion industry, it will always be a fast-paced industry. People are going back to business as usual, which is such a shame because I thought that that was, that was such a that was a revelation moment. It was a moment to fix. And don't get me wrong, there are some businesses and some brands who are actually you can see them tr- acknowledging that they are a part of the problem and trying to fix it. But I would say a vast majority of them have gone back to business as usual. So you think it's a uh, definitely a missed opportunity in a way. Hundred percent, a missed opportunity. It was a big opportunity to really instigate some change. The sad part is that a lot of the biggest brands are a lot of the brands that if consumers. I always say that if minority consumers would just stop supporting the brands that don't support them, that's how the change could be made. Because at the end of the day, this is a business and everyone's looking at their bottom line and their profits. But for some reason, we, you know, a lot of the brands who are the most problematic are the brands that are the most popular within the minority community, which I cannot wrap my head around. Because as consumers, we don't realize how much power we have. Can you tell us a little bit about your work at the Diversity and Inclusion Steering Committee at BFC? What initiatives is it currently supporting? Yeah, I was 
you know, over the course of the pandemic, the BFC put together this diversity and inclusion steering committee, which was the first time that I had I saw so many people of color even being put alongside the BFC. The BFC was also a very white elitist enterprise. Um, so I do applaud them for trying to fix that. It's been very slow, I think. But I've also had to realize that as a government entity, there's a lot of more red tape. Mm-hmm. Um, but my involvement, you know, I I was really excited to I work I partnered with Harper's Bazaar on behalf of the BFC for the British Fashion Awards last year, and I was able to spotlight some minority designers, uh, Priya Alawalia, uh, and some a few other designers as well that I really kind of hold who don't come from backgrounds where everything was handed to them on as you know on a silver platter. These are people that have had to work. Um, so in that very small way, to be able to just give them that that moment to shine and to give them that 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 spotlight, that really meant a lot to me. And, and I think the work that these designers are doing is really important work, and all of their backgrounds are so eclectic as well. So that was I, that was really something that from my time of being with the BFC is probably probably the, the, the highlights that I've been able to kind of push forward, especially with the publication like Harper's Bazaar as well. And McKinsey's report says discrimination starts in the access to education. How important is education to secure a career in fashion? I'm thinking of you and Blair's alternative to a university degree, offering apprenticeships at tech giants with this multiverse company. Do you think this could work in the fashion industry or fashion interns will always be happy to work for free? I think this is a big conversation that we're we're having you know, even at our business, um, we we try to compensate our interns, but the business has been built on interns working for free, which is not good. I don't condone that by any means. Um, I think that there is a learning that needs to be had when someone is and when someone is an intern, and I think that interning is important because I interned for free. And some of my biggest learning curves happened as, a, as being able to be a fly in the wall in some very critical moments for free cover shots and working with celebrity. So I do think that interning is very important, but I think the bigger question is education. So I think if we can get to the grassroots and, and be able to make, ensure that creative components, you know, and that, that creative um, syllabus is being provided as an option for, for minority students, I think that that's will then propel there to be a ripple effect of diversity and inclusion organically happening within the fashion industry. What's happening now is that with a lot of minority families, they encourage the their children to be a doctor or to be a lawyer. People don't really see fashion as a real career. It's, it's oftentimes seen as a hobby. Like I said at the beginning, you know, the job of a stylist was originally a job that was for rich white women. You know, their husbands, you know, when Condé Nast founded Vogue, you know, he hired the, the, the society women. So they don't they don't they didn't need to do it to make a living. They just needed to do it to get a free bag or to get a designer to make them a custom <laughs> frock. But now we're trying to shift that narrative. This is a career. This is a business. Um, and I think that that narrative will continue to exist as the next generations start to come in. You know, I get excited when I see these young stylists now. I mean, the market is definitely oversaturated, but I think that they are changing the, the agenda. You know, I think to see such an eclectic mix of stylists who are coming from every walk of life is what's necessary to kind of break up um, 
the density of elitism in the, in the fashion space. So I think education is so important in making sure that people from a very early start, both parents and children are aware of how the creative enterprise can also be very, can be a very profitable business and a, prof, and a profitable career as well. Another key element of discrimination is recruitment. Big companies tend to use algorithms that give preference to those who are more keyword savvy. And the final selection, as in small companies, is still led by people who are bound to bias, as humans are naturally attracted towards their own peers. What can be done about this? You have to die. That's a really interesting one, because we're actually we're in the process of hiring someone for our, our studio. And I think... Again, it goes back to diversifying your C-suite because you're so right. What happens is is that, as an example, I remember Robin Givon, who's a brilliant journalist um, in America, she said people are not motivated to exist outside of their social circles. So if you're building a team or if you're building a, building a company or you're placed in charge and you're placed of high, in charge of hiring the next person, if you if you go into Oxford or if you are part of the members this members club and an application comes across and you see that that person also went to Oxford or you see that that person also is members club or they're friends with your friend, the likelihood is that you're going to probably hire that person just by the, because the proximity of familiarity makes you feel comfortable, yes. and that's the problem is everyone is everyone is so concerned about their comfort levels. In order to fix this problem. It has to be uncomfortable. You have to have uncomfortable conversations. You have to push yourselves outside of the comfort zone because this has been the way of doing business for too long. And the way of doing this business is not right. So to rectify that, we have to push everyone outside of their comfort zones. Because minorities, we've been made to feel uncomfortable being the only person in the room, being told that we're not good enough, being told that we can't do this job because we don't think you can deliver. So our, we've, we've always had to be uncomfortable. So now let's give you some of that uncomfortability. And, and that's the push that needs to happen. So it's about taking risks as well. Yes. And I think that that is not going to happen if we don't diversify at the top. Because right now the top is very white. If you're just doing, again, if you go on LinkedIn, do a quick Google, just type in, a, type in your favorite luxury brand. And just see who's in those top positions. That's the problem. We do have many startups and emerging brands and retailers in our audience that may be facing discrimination in access to investment or in any other areas of their business. What advice could you give to, for them to keep going? It's difficult. I think minority businesses definitely struggle. Especially like when you said trying to get investment. I think, let's go back to what Iman said. You know what the playing field is. You are just go into it knowing that it's going to be difficult because I think when you go into a situation knowing what the knowing what the expectations are and managing your expectations, it allows you to prepare yourself. You are going to have to be more prepared. You are going to have to sing and dance a little bit more. You are going to have to make your whatever you're presenting or whatever you're trying to get in, get investors for. It's going to have to be ten times better. And unfortunately. That's the truth right now. Um, and I think sometimes you have to have hard truths, maybe. Sometimes that truth might be, now is not the time for me to start my business because there's not the resources available for me to amplify and take this to the next level. And that's really difficult to understand. So then if that, if that becomes your truth, then it's about finding a business where you can still be celebrated as a creative or as a business person and still be able to shine within the space of a business that will allow you to do that. 
But if you truly believe in what you're doing, if you truly believe in your product, you truly believe in your business plan, then you have to fight for it and you have to push for it and you have to make it happen. And it will. Thank you, Zadrian, for being with us this morning. Thank you so much, Lena. It's been such a joy. I thank you for having these conversations because these are uncomfortable conversations. These are difficult conversations to be had. But it's but I think a big part of the change that we need to see happen starts with conversations just like this because they'll hopefully be one of your listeners who will listen to this, who has some power, who has some access and some resources and will say, you know what, let me make a call today. Let me answer that email. Let me reach out to that student that reached out to me years ago to help them. And that ripple effect is how we will be able to slowly dissipate all the isms of the fashion industry. Yeah, I mean, currently we have at Hive uh, the Power of One campaign, which mm. is kind of across all our shows. And it's all about empowering change mm -hmm. uh, with small changes. Uh, so if each of us takes a small step together, we, we can make exactly. a big change. Exactly. So that reminds me 100%. of that. 100%. It's all about the community and it's all about individuals coming together collectively. That's how we promote and achieve the biggest change with lasting effect. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lena. And thank you for listening. Stay tuned. Thank you.